Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That is Philippians 4, verse 8. I'm your host, Sandra Flack. Thank you for joining us for this ninth bonus episode in our series, What Every Adoptive and Foster Parent Needs to Know About Trauma, FASD, and Adverse Childhood Experiences with our special guest, Dr. Jared Brown. This series covers vital topics for all of us foster, adoptive, and kinship caregivers. I recommend that you take notes during these episodes. I find it, I'm just scribbling away the whole time furiously. Um, If you don't have a notebook or a pen handy, uh, then feel free to pause now and go grab some, one, and um, then you can press play again and finish listening and take notes, or you can just listen all the way through and then grab a notebook later on and go through a second time and and jot down those things that really stood out to you the first time around. Um, Because just such vital information, things that you're going to want to really um, just ponder and implement with your family, um, things you want to research out a little bit more and study a little bit more. Um, So we just want to provide you with resources here um, that will help you along your journey. And Dr. Brown has um, just such, he's such a treasure treasure trove of information um, for us. Uh, So I hope you're really enjoying these episodes. Uh, The regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey drop into your inbox on Mondays. This special bonus series uh, with Dr. Brown, they are dropping on Fridays. We're probably going to do about 15 or so bonus episodes. We have a lot more content coming, so stay on the lookout. If you're not yet a subscriber to this podcast, I would sincerely appreciate it if you take a moment to subscribe. And if you listen on an Apple device, uh, go ahead and leave a review. It's super simple to do, and it really does make a huge impact because when you subscribe and leave a review, it it makes it so this show um, is more findable when, when people are searching for uh, podcasts about adoption, foster care, um, childhood trauma, FASD, all those things. Um, and we want every foster and adoptive parent to be able to easily find us. So I hope that you will take the time to do that. Uh, also, if you would like to reach out, if you have a question, a comment, a suggestion, somebody you would love for us to interview, whether it's for the a, a bonus episode or for our regular episodes, um, reach out. You can contact me through our ministry website, justicefororphansny.org. And of course, there's always a link in the show notes to our website. And also you can email me directly. Uh, my email address is Sandra Flack. JFO at gmail.com. And we always love to hear from you listeners. Um, Also, I'm super excited. I was going to say stoked. I don't know if that would date me or not. Probably it would. Um, But super excited um, about our new Hope for the FASD Journey community. And I would love to invite you to join us Um, Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope podcast and I are collaborating together to bring you Hope for the FASD Journey, the virtual support community for us caregivers, raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. Um, if you if you know possibly that the children that you are raising um, maybe were prenatally exposed to drugs, but you don't know about the alcohol, or maybe you have no idea of their history, um, and you're just learning some things about FASD and you're suspecting hmm, this could be the case. Parenting's super hard at our house. I want to learn more. I want to hear more, and I just want to sit and have a cup of coffee with Natalie and Sandra. This support group community is exactly how you can do that virtually. 
uh, minus the coffee part, um, but you can drink coffee while you're listening to us um, or and being part of our group and interacting with us. Um, and I know very interestingly, uh, we added it up and between Natalie and I, we have over 40 years of lived experience raising children that we've adopted, um, that um, some of them have been diagnosed with NFASD. So, and we are still raising these kids and we're still living the dream and we know how vital connection and community are for this journey. And we want to uh, invite you along to journey along with us. Um, so to join the community, uh, you have access to two monthly support group meetings via Zoom that we invite you into and one VIP conversation where we have a special guest who will be sharing their story. Uh, and then uh, community members have an opportunity to ask questions of the guest and just have a, a really great um, conversation with them. And then we also have a private Facebook group, which we will all be accessing and, and sharing and connecting there every single day. Um, but also that will include a weekly um, video devotional that Natalie and I will be taking turns bringing uh, to you on the, on the Facebook group. So to get to be part of this community, uh, you can go to justicefororphansny.org and then click the training tab at the top of the page. And in the drop down menu, you will see FASD and you would click there. And there's all of our FASD resources that we currently have up, including how to join the community. And right now we've decided to offer the community at a major discounted price. It's only $15 a month. Um, and we, we just want to make it so that nobody is excluded because of the cost of uh, a monthly uh, membership. Um, and if and if you still can't do the $15 a month, um, then we would ask that you let us know and we'll see what we can do to help you with a scholarship to be able to join and be part of the group regardless, because we don't want um, finances to ever be a reason why a family is not getting supports and services that they so desperately need. So check it out again, justicefororphansny.org backslash training backslash FASD. And there's a link in the show notes. Now to our guest, Dr. Jared Brown, PhD, is an assistant professor for Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Jared has also been employed with Pathways Counseling Center in St. Paul for the past 17 years. Pathways provides programs and services benefiting individuals impacted by mental illness and addictions. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies and the Editor-in-Chief of Forensic Scholars Today. Jared has completed four separate master's degree programs and holds graduate certificates in autism spectrum disorder, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries. Jared is also certified as a youth fire setting prevention and intervention specialist, an anger resolution therapist, a thinking for a change facilitator, an FASD trainer, an autism specialist, and a mental health integrative medicine provider. All of those credentials means he knows the stuff that we need to know. So please welcome Dr. Jared Brown. Hey, Jared, welcome back. Good morning, Sandra. Thanks for having me. Well, I can't even begin to express how much these episodes mean to me personally and how helpful they are. You know, as you know, I'm a parent of eight, five kids through adoption. So all this content on trauma and FASD, I'm finding so, so beneficial. Um, and I've been parenting kids with trauma history for over 20 years, and I still have so much to learn. And these bonus episodes that we're doing are exactly what we need. So thank you so much um, for being with us and just doing this whole series with us. Of course, yep. Honored to be here and thank you for the opportunity. Oh, thank you again. Last week, you shared about self-regulation or dysregulation, as we often experience here uh, in our in, with our kiddos, and also known as impulse control, impulsivity. Uh, and that's all part of the boss of the brain. You gave us that 
uh, great picture for executive function. And these are all essential topics for us adoptive and foster parents, understanding the brain and how trauma and FASD impacts the brain, absolutely vital to this parenting journey. And today we're going to discuss trauma and metacognition. And I can't say that I understand exactly what metacognition is. We were just talking before I hit record that I probably do know about it. I just didn't know that I didn't know the term metacognition so well. So Jared, would you define it for us? Yeah, you bet. You're going to start hearing common themes now when we're talking about executive function, self-regulation, metacognition. So executive function, boss of the brain, metacognition is the boss of the boss. So this is, I put it a little bit higher than the executive function because it really is a, a type of executive function, but it's like the ultimate executive function. And it's really related to our ability to carry out like complex tasks and performance. And it plays a critical role in self-regulation and learning and self-awareness. So when we're thinking about these topics, very, very important to understand the person's problem-solving abilities, their judgment, their reasoning. How do they plan and organize? How do they do mathematics and other types of educational kinds of activities? We've talked a little bit about abstract reasoning, where that is understanding like how and why questions, cause and effect, seeing the gray in areas, being able to take all of these things and kind of make sense of them and then use them to solve problems. Metacognition plays a role in every one of those. So if someone is dealing with self-control issues, if they have issues of like self-awareness where they may lack their own understanding of their own strengths and limitations, and if they have problems in the area of social skills, social adaptability, metacognition is, is at the top of the list to consider. So when we think about metacognition, when it's working properly, we typically have better abilities to carry out a specific task, or we're able to at least know that maybe we're lacking some skills or resources or tools in that area. We ask somebody else for help. I need a little extra help, or I'm confused. We have control over our outcomes. So we typically are not gonna be in a, a position to throw in the towel when we don't know the answer or things get really tough. We're gonna seek out answers. We're gonna maybe go online and read about it or take a class or ask someone for help or use some sort of resource or tool or something. Or maybe someone's doing calculus and you can't do calculus without a calculator. I'm no math expert by any stretch. So we also can then reflect back on our failures, the things we don't do well, the mistakes we've made, the errors we've made, and we can look back on them and then make adjustments in the future and then maybe use different strategies to overcome them. Metacognition involves all of those things. So Breaking it down a little bit further, what about self-monitoring? Do we know how to monitor our own thoughts and behaviors and actions and feelings? Which a lot of those are related to self-regulation too. So there's a lot of overlap with this. So if someone has deficits in one area, oftentimes it can trickle down to having more deficits in, in another area. So think of metacognition, self-awareness, our own insights, personal insights. So being able to self-reflect, go inward and have good introspection. What's our ability to use prior knowledge and then apply that to approach a certain task in the future. A lot, a lot of this research looks at it through like a learning lens, but there's plenty of studies that look at it within the context of other topics. The steps that we need to carry out 
to solve complex problems, but also mid-sized problems and just smaller problems as well. And then the reflection, taking some time to self-reflect, look back on what we could have did different, what we did well, what we're confused on. And then in the future, how do we make those modifications so we don't maybe make those same mistakes? And I'll break it down even more in a few minutes, Sandra. But if you're raising a child with FASD, you are raising a child that has deficits in many of these areas, if we believe what the research says. And in all of my experience and talking to many caregivers and professionals, people with FASD are dealing with these issues all the time. There is some research on FASD and metacognition where they use that word metacognition, but there is tons of research on the word executive function in FASD. If you go into this research too, if you type in if online like metacognitive training, metacognitive training is basically helping people improve in these areas. And it's highly recommended for people with neurodevelopmental disorders. So people with autism, ADHD, FASD, intellectual and developmental disabilities. But it's also highly recommended for working with clients who are dealing with serious mental health issues. So this is not just something that someone with FASD deals with. And trauma, without a doubt, depending on the severity of the trauma, can impact many of these domains of functioning as well. So, Sandra, before I kind of break it apart a little bit more, any any thoughts or questions? Yeah, I feel like when you were kind of ex describing or defining metacognition and, and if it's working properly, right, then, uh, you know, and just all of all of those things that are affected, the problem solving, the judgment, planning, organizing, abstract cause and effect, like you're describing all of the challenges that, that my children with an FASD face, especially, I feel like you just totally nailed one of my, one of my teenagers, um, describing really the challenges that they face on a daily basis. And one of, one of those, one of the things that you said was learning really that learning from mistakes, being able to reflect on back on failures and then learn from our mistakes. And I have seen that that is something that really lacks in some of my kids who've had trauma and prenatal exposure, it's, and that's why, and maybe you can answer this, that's why consequences don't ever seem to work because they just don't learn from the lesson. They don't learn from the consequences. If I issue consequences, um, you know, and I remember in my early years of parenting kids with trauma, having no clue, you know, really had a parent through a trauma lens, had no idea about anything. And I would just issue consequences for you know, disobedient behavior and you didn't clean your room, you didn't do your homework, you, you know, didn't do your chores, whatever those things were. And I would, but they still didn't learn where, you know, kids that are neurotypical do tend to learn from their mistakes. Or if you, if they, you know, they learn their lesson and they're like not going to want to have to go to bed early or not miss dessert or whatever the consequence would be. Um, is that all part of metacognition? I would say yes, yes, definitely. Cause and effect, abstract reasoning, all of these things intertwine. Metacognition skills is our ability to think about our own thinking and know about our own knowing. That sounds weird when you say that out loud, but I mean, that goes to the heart of self-awareness, self-knowledge. There are so many things that I don't do well on. I, I If I know that, then I know how to make modifications or ask for help or get some extra training or skills in that area. People with these deficits may not even realize they have the deficit. They don't know when to ask the question because their brain isn't telling them there's any questions to ask. In some cases, they may be very confused as to why they're having a timeout or being grounded because in their mind, what in the world did they do wrong? They're not linking that together. So then they become frustrated, irritable. Maybe it's yelling and screaming. I've consulted on cases where 
it's gotten all the way to the point where they've attacked a staff member or ran away or jumped out of a moving car where it's that extreme. Their brains are not making sense of this. So then they don't take those necessary steps to solve the problem. It can really get in the way of their conflict resolution abilities. In some cases, it could be a trigger for them going from like zero to 60 in a second. And then after the dust settles, they feel bad sometimes. They don't know why they did this. So over the long haul, I've seen this working on adult cases, higher levels of shame creep in because they don't necessarily want to do this. It just comes on so quickly. It's so impulsive. So impulse control factors into this too, because if we can slow the brain down, give the brain time to digest the information, then they might be more likely to make some changes and interventions might be more appropriate. Self-correcting in response to a certain type of activity is a huge component of this as well. So really think of it as self-knowledge, self-awareness, self-monitoring, our ability to know about knowing, knowing about our strengths, knowing about our weaknesses, thinking about this, taking time to self-reflect and learn and strategize is really core components of metacognition. And unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of kids, a lot of adults with these neurodevelopmental disorders, these are core, core deficits they deal with. And that's one reason why adaptive functioning is lower in a lot of these individuals. Adaptive functioning, independent living skills, social responsibility, managing a checkbook, how to get from point A to point B using public transportation, doing laundry, cooking, cleaning. These are all adaptive skills. And if metacognition executive functions off, it kind of has a downstream effect. It's going to make day-to-day -day living more tricky when proper supports and services and reminders and cues and prompts are not in place. And this could look like, because I, I, you know, we know that FASD is an invisible physical disability. So at first glance, you can't tell someone has this brain-based disability, but it presents in a way that looks like they are being difficult, that they're being, uh, because they, they lack this. So some of the behaviors that parents complain about or see or are frustrated in dealing with are really symptoms to the an FASD or trauma, but it's, it's all of this because it doesn't look like they're it looks like they're difficult. It looks like they're um, disobedient. They're being bad, but it's really, it all comes from their, their, the deficits with metacognition. Is that right? It's, it's really, it's really a brain thing. And we have to really understand the brain to understand our kids and to really adequately be able to help them. Everything I know about it. Yes. But most like if you study FASD, they always say, yeah, it's a brain-based disorder, which absolutely it is, but it's really a, a full body disorder. So we need to take into account too, like how does lack of sleep then make the brain-based problems worse? How does digestive health problems have a negative impact on the brain? So it's all interconnected. What happens if someone's always dealing with tons and tons of stress? Their body's probably dealing with some chronic low-grade inflammation that makes the brain not work as good. If someone is always drinking sugar, sweetened beverages and eating processed foods and never taking care of themselves and living a sedentary lifestyle, that has a really profound impact on the brain as well. So there are things that make the brain worse and things that we do can make it better. But already, if you have a child with FASD or any kind of prenatal exposure to drugs or alcohol, their brain is already dealing with a level of vulnerability. So now if you bring in these other things, lack of sleep, tons of stress, never moving, de dealing with lots of conflict, that just is fuel on the fire for an already vulnerable brain. So really looking at this from a 
a holistic whole body approach. I give a lot of talks on the topic of psychoneuroendocrine immunology. It's a big, big word. It's bringing in the field, lots of fields of study to help better understand human behavior and disease and illnesses. It's not necessarily for people with FASD. It's really for, it's a whole paradigm shift and lots of medical doctors study this, but there are some mental health folks that study this and it really understands the connection between our brain, our immune system, our endocrine system, our digestive health, what role stress plays, what role does other like lifestyle factors play. It's that whole body approach, whole paradigm approach. I love that research. And it's just helped me better understand why people may do the things they do. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with the whole body approach because I know I have, um, you know, with, with, with an FASD, there could be, I believe over 400 comorbidities. Um, and then we have, specialists and doctors who want to treat separate everything separately. You know, I have one, one of my kids had severe scoliosis, had to have multiple surgeries, um, very small. He, he's, he's 19 and weighs 88 pounds. Um, he's had to have, he's got hardware in his back, spinal fusion. Um, he, and you just described when you're talking about sugary beverages, processed food, fast food, that's him. Um, and he, and, and, and he, and he doesn't care about his health. Like that's, you know, you monitor it when they're little, but they reach a certain age. And then I, you know, he's a teenager with an FASD and I, I see all of these things that I know are all really directly related to the FASD. And it's, it's every, you know, everybody else sees it as separate things, you know, or that he could just fix it. You know, he could just eat better. He could just, but it's like, he's on a, an all out mission for sugar every day. Um, so I just see how the whole body approach, it's, it's all, it all comes down to really what the, the brain, right? Absolutely. Well, yes. And I also believe it comes down to the gut. Yes. And the vagus nerve and our HPA access. They're all connected. So it's so important to understand all of those interconnectedness. And there's way more than that going on. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. It's that whole body, the whole body approach. But when an individual's had tra childhood trauma, prenatal exposure, does that, and I, I, I'm assuming it does, I think it does, does, does the, the trauma and the prenatal exposure affect all of those things that you just listed from the brain to the gut to everything that you just listed in theory yes it's tough to know with every person but yes in theory it's not like the trauma is going to just stay right in the brain the trauma impacts our body a lot of trauma memories are stored in our muscles and that's why if you look at the trauma research take fasd out but i think this is just as important body-based movement so important Yoga has been shown to be important. Um, doing rhythmic movements. Maybe it's working with a play therapist, an art therapist, equine therapy. Just getting movement involved. Deep breathing, stretching. All of those things are great for our brain. They're great for our HPA access. They're great for circulation. They're great for helping improve sleep. Maybe it's working again with a nutritionist too, and you're targeting this at the cellular level as well. And there's so much about nutrition and the impact it can have on the brain and the, the gut and the body and our blood sugar levels. So these are things we can absolutely break down for future episodes, but it's so interconnected. And with the metacognition, that's kind of that boss in the brain of the boss that drives those higher order cognitive processes. So let's say someone really struggles with making good health decisions around what they eat or am I going to exercise today? Promoting metacognition can give that person more self-awareness knowing, you know, I'm, I'm really tired today. I'm feeling lazy, but I know that if I take 30 minutes to an hour or whatever it is, and go for a walk, 
the rest of my day, I'll probably feel better. That's using metacognition. That's using those higher order cognitive processes. Thinking to the future, not in the moment too. Our ability to delay gratification. How many people would just rather lay and watch a movie when they're feeling tough than go outside for a walk, even though maybe going for even a 10 minute walk may lift their mood so much, they'd be in a much better position to accomplish some other goal. This can get in the way of our motivation without a doubt, but so can sleep, so can digestive health issues, so can blood sugar dysregulation, the list goes on and on. There's a term that your audience may or may not have heard of. It's called anisogosia. And it's, Ooh, can yeah, you it's spell, spell is, that? Yeah, it's A is in Adam, N is in Nora, O is in Ocean, S is in Sam, O is in Ocean, G is in George, N is in Nora, O is in Ocean, S is in Sam, I is in Ida, and A is in Adam. So anisogosia comes up in the metacognition research literature from time to time, but there's a lot of studies on anisogosia. I've actually given a talk on it to a different group at one point. And it, if you believe what the research says on this, it's one of the number one reasons why people are not successful in treatment. And anisogosia is when someone does not have any awareness that they have any disorder or disease or limitation. They absolutely do not believe it. They think if other people around them say, hey, you are diagnosed with this or you have this limitation, they think those people are making it up. So if you don't have any awareness that you have any illness, disorder, disease, deficit, the research points to the fact you're more likely not to stay on your meds as prescribed you're more likely not to comply with the doctor's suggestions. You're more likely not to stay in mental health treatment. If, if you are required to go to mental health treatment, you're more likely to have conflict with your family. You're more likely to come into contact with the justice system, crisis units, hospitalizations. It's a really big thing. There's so many facets of anisogosia out there too. It's more common in people like schizophrenia or certain types of traumatic brain injury, Alzheimer's, dementia. But what you're saying, Sandra, I don't know if it fits with your son per se, but I do see that there are several people, at least cases I've consulted on where the person with FASD does not recognize or believe that they have any limitation or disorder. So if that's the case, in some cases, they may put themselves in positions that could get themselves hurt. They don't realize maybe they have a mobility issue. So they're trying to do something that overextends themselves and they could get hurt, like riding a bicycle when they have visual spatial impairment. And there's two cases I consulted on where the person's riding a bike and they didn't have any idea that they couldn't ride a bike. They wiped out and hit their head on the concrete and sustained a brain injury on top of the FASD now. That's a worst mm. case scenario. Yeah. There's anisogosia. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I'll, I'll finish on the anisogosia and then I'll, I I have a, another thought. It may be they, they lack the awareness that they have any language deficits or they lack the awareness they have any cognitive deficits. So it can be lots of different areas where maybe they lack the awareness. It's a little different than den denial. Denial might be a self-protection mechanism where they don't want to admit that they lost that ability because it's too painful. This is really a product of the actual disorder where they truly believe there's nothing going on with them. Yeah, I think with, with my one of my sons in particular, um, who's 19 and he's the one with the surgeries and he he's, understands that he has you know, he doesn't like the fact he doesn't want to be different or have a disability, but he knows um, and does acknowledge. Uh, but I find that when it comes to things like nutrition um, and and like he really does, it's like a sugar addiction. He'd rather drink a sugary beverage than eat food most of the time. So I'm, you know, having to and it's tricky because he's 19, but yet he does have the dismaturity 
that factors in. So sometimes I think, well, if he, you know, what, what eight or nine year old doesn't want to just have soda all day long. Right. So it's like, there's, there's not that maturity to care about his health or, um, to eat healthy food. It's, it's, it's kind of, I think, I feel like it's a combination of things. I think it's partially the dismaturity, partially, I have heard that individuals with an FASD um, can, uh, sugar addiction is very common. So I think there's, there's that, um, but he just doesn't really, he doesn't care if it's, if it's not, you know, if I try to instruct him about health and nutrition, he doesn't want to hear it. So it's, it's a challenge because I want him to be healthy and not end up with further health issues down the road, but he's not really interested in helping himself at this point. I hear that too. I see it all the time with the sugar. I actually gave a lunch hour talk earlier this week on excessive sugar consumption and its impact it has on our brain and the way we think and our mood and even its impact on criminality in some cases. It was really fascinating. And I did talk about FASD a little bit in there and autism and ADHD. There is more literature on sugar and ADHD and autism than there is with FASD. But I did come across just a few articles that did talk about really some abnormal eating behaviors among people with FASD. And probably, I hate to always say with definitive nature, probably these researchers found that higher incidence of like unhealthy eating habits and stuff. But anecdotally, I see it all the time with addictive tendencies, it seems like, to sugar. And I have a lot of theories behind that. But if we ever wanted to do a talk on sugar, I'd be more than happy to do that. I find it fascinating. But again, this is not nutritional advice. I'd just be sharing what the research literature says. But definitely talk to a nutritionist before doing any intervention around that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and sugar is one of those things I know we watched real closely with our youngest because when he came to us, you know, there were such um, behaviors that we knew, let's keep the sugar and the preservatives away from this kid. So he, you know, so one of them has really, you know, really pretty healthy, not that he doesn't want a soda now and then, but, um, you know, he has better eating habits because of that, but the, then the older one, um, just prefers, you know, because he's older and a little bit more independent, he can drive and he goes to work. Um, he's making more of his own choices outside the house, um, when it comes to food and it, you know, but he comes home with these big cups, you know, the big soda fountain cup cups, you know, of, you know, some kind of Mountain Dew or, you know, some kind of sugary beverage. And it's like, you know, I just cringe because I know how bad it is for him. And I also know that at the same time, he probably didn't eat, you know, who knows when the last time he voluntarily ate, voluntarily ate a fruit or vegetable, you know, but he doesn't care at the same time. If I, if I try to approach it, like, you know, let's have something healthy. Um, he doesn't really care. So that that's been a challenge. And I think part of it is just not, you know, when you were talking about the metacognition and it's that. Um, self-awareness, self-monitoring, um, self-reflection. He's not really doing any of that. So when, when we're looking at metacognition and the deficits, it, it, it trickles down into leading to more like psychosocial deficits. So psycho, psychology, social, and the social arena. There, there's, there's plenty of evidence to show if someone is dealing with metacognition deficits, it can really get in the way of them finding and holding a job for one it can also have a really profound impact on their family functioning so they might have more conflict with family members there's a direct connection too between metacognition deficits and motivation so more metacognition deficits oftentimes trickle down into having lower levels of motivation to participate in whatever it is you pick it. Maybe it's about living a healthy lifestyle, getting your homework done. There's also some evidence to support the fact that metacognition deficits can really get in the way of that person being a good driver. I've been doing more and more talks on driving and road rage and problematic driving behaviors. And 
I'm actually doing a talk for a group coming up on FASD and driving. There's virtually zero empirical-based studies that I've come across that talk about driving behaviors. You'll find a few like blog sites where they talk about it's an issue, but there's actually quite a bit of literature on traumatic brain injury, ADHD, and autism in driving. Anecdotally, I hear the stories, I see the patterns that some people with FASD definitely struggle with driving. Obviously, if they're dealing with a lot of these deficits, that can get tricky. So that that's definitely something we want to be aware of. And Medicaid, yeah. oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to just chime in on the driving because I have with my two who are diagnosed FAS. One drives um, and he does really well with the driving. But initially we did discover he wasn't making wise choices about where to go that were safe places to go. So we had to deal with that. Um, but then, then, you know, we have one who's going to be 17 who, um, he can drive things. So he can drive a four wheeler, a golf cart, a lawnmower, a dirt bike. Um, but I really hesitate to think of him being on the road because riding in the car is something that's very stressful for him. And he has the road rage as a passenger. Um, and he'll say, say things like, you know, I would just go 90 here, you know, 90 miles per hour here. And I'm like, well, that's why we're not really in a hurry to get you a license. Or he has said things like, um, you know, because I, I asked him, well, where would you go if you have a driver's license? Now, we live in New York. He said, I'm going to go to Texas. That's where I'm going to drive to. So for a lot of different reasons, his safety, as well as other people on the road, we're not thinking that he really has that ability to make wise choices in drive, not, not in just where to go, but to, to drive safely, the right speed to go. Um, and all of those things that you have to be able to navigate to drive. So um, scary how there's just not that, you know, he would rather go nine, like, you know, a road, a road where we go 45, if the cars are going 40 and he doesn't think that's fast enough, he'll say, just pass them and do 90. I would, I would do 90 here. And it's scary. Part of that could be that inhibition, uh, the self-regulation, self-control, a lot of other things, but I have a lot I could share on driving in the future, but it would just be, again, kind of breaking down what the research says about other neurodevelopmental disorders and neurocognitive disorders. But again, there's just not a lot of evidence per se on FASD in the research literature, but anecdotally, what you just said, I hear those same stories all the time, over and over and over again. So it it, it is a... Driving is another thing, and metacognition, better metacognition oftentimes translates to better decision-making, including with driving, including with money, including with our health habits, including with our relationships. There is also evidence that metacognitive problems play a role in the development of numerous mental health issues, including substance use issues more obsessive compulsive tendencies, more mood problems, and a higher likelihood the person may be dealing with some sort of screen time misuse, which I know we've talked about in the past, that all of what I'm saying, this is found in the research literature. And these are all things too we see at an elevated level with folks who are diagnosed with FASD, unfortunately too. So it all kind of wraps together. It's starting to interconnect, hopefully, and make sense that there's a lot of moving parts when we think about these deficits. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And so as a parent, I'm sitting here thinking, as I often do, <laughs> what can we do to help our kids? Because if we're seeing these things and it's clear they have executive function deficits, they have metacognition deficits, what can we do as parents to help our kids? Get some training and find someone who knows about metacognitive training. And there are a few studies in the FASD literature that have found that metacognition training is helpful. So it's definitely worth looking into. And that would be training for the 
or like say for our kids? Yeah, it would be like having a professional work with that individual and, and doing some metacognition training or executive functioning training, or maybe it's working memory training or teaching self-regulation strategies. So it's going to be more like coaching, modeling, teaching. Sometimes some of the interventions may use different types of assisted technology or different computer software programs where the person goes on and has to do different things to help train the brain and stuff. That'd be something to look at. When, when we're thinking about teaching metacognition to anyone, it doesn't matter who it is, getting them to start thinking about self-reflective questions. That is going to be very hard to do, obviously, if someone has those abstract reasoning deficits. But just talking about these things and coaching and modeling and teaching and role-playing and just practicing these things and helping them really start learning about their own learning, knowing about their own knowing, teaching finding a person who is qualified in these things and maybe it's just really providing some education too to the family and the individual that's impacted anything we can do to promote problem solving and conflict resolution can be very very helpful but if we were to break down like teaching metacognition kinds of skills we talked about scaffolding here and there. So you want to like chunk things out, break it down, step-by-step -step instructions. We also want to be aware of their information processing speed ability. So we, want, we don't want to overwhelm their, their brain with tons of information. So again, stay, probably stay away from multitasking, talking too fast, or like giving two, three, four instructions in a couple sentences, just really one at a time. And depending on how the person learns, you may need to not only verbally kind of talk about it, but then attach it to some sort of visual aid, making it visual, showing a video, maybe finding an educational video and you talk about it, you watch the video, you go out and practice it and you do this over and over and over again getting things organized too keeping things really organized can help bring down stress and it can actually take some pressure off one's working memory because if there's a lot of clutter in the background wherever you're at if it's in an office or wherever and there's all kinds of background noise not just auditory noise but bright lights tons of things, just things in disarray, Get, getting things really organized can be very, 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 very helpful. Using a visual checklist might be helpful, but not having too many checks on there. So maybe each day, just that task is identified and then you cover up that task and move to the next day where it's, it's, it's visual, but it's not a visual chart where there's like 20 things on there that can overwhelm an FASD brain very quickly. Fact check, verify, I say this all the time. Don't rely on the verbal head nods that they get it. Fact check, verify, have them repeat back, have them demonstrate these things. Maybe too, it's providing examples. So you're teaching that skill, but then give some concrete visual examples. And again, that might be finding a short video online. Here's an example of what we're talking about. That might be helpful for that person to connect the dots more. Those are a few things looking through a metacognition lens, but those are those are approaches I think you could use with with anyone. If if you would do you mind oh that's okay. Do you mind if I just share a few other strategies through a self-regulation lens through that's really related to metacognition strategies? Uh, absolutely. And then I, I just, I was, my question was going to be about the videos. So give us an example of what kind of video, like what would the topic be that we should search for if we're trying to teach? Um, I don't know. There's so many things that we could, we, we might want to watch or, or have our, have our kid or individual who has, has FASD watch. What would be an example of, of one of those? 
Well, maybe it's what does respectful behavior look like? I mean, fine. It, that's one example that comes to mind. Like, what does it mean to be respectful? Because if you say that word respectful, what in the world does that truly mean to somebody that might have some abstract reasoning or they, they hear the word, but like, what, how do you define it? How do you label it? How do you apply it? What does that truly mean? Chunking that out, breaking it down, not just saying that, showing it, teaching it, modeling it, role-playing it, those kind of things. And, and that's a great segue into this: the metacognition self-regulation strategies, rehearsal, organ, really teaching those organizational strategies, helping people put on the brakes and learning how to slow down and listen and truly hear what you're saying because if their mind is go, 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 go constantly, it's hard to get that information in there. So maybe the, the person's dealing with a co-occurring attentional problem or they're sleep deprived the, the night before or they were on their gadgets for five hours and now their brain is just so shot. Maybe that now it's not the right time. Really pick the time to teach the intervention. Yeah. Or like their mom is giving a lecture about uh, inappropriate behavior and they don't even know what the word uh, inappropriate means <laughs> guilty here. Um, and, and I had to back up and like, like you said, fact check, fact check and verify. And he was, you know, he kept telling me, I know, I know, I know. And then I said, well, but do you know what inappropriate means? And he was like, no, I think I shared this in our, on our last episode. And so then I had to find a simple script for what I mean by, um, what is appropriate, it's right and good. So if it's not appropriate, it's not right or and it's not good. Um, and just kind of simplifying how I was how I was teaching that and the words I was using. And because he is with the slow processing, I can't use a bunch of words. It has to be super simple. Spot up. Absolutely. And when we're looking at this stuff too, let's just look through a learning lens. There's something called self-regulated learning. That might be another term for people just to be aware of. And part of that involves metacognition, but also it looks at the motivational aspects of learning, the behavioral aspects, the emotional aspects. So self-regulated learning would be something for folks to maybe look into a little bit more. I think anything we can do to promote self-reflection abilities. So again, getting them to think more in pausing and helping them either process or ponder or consider or evaluate what they did. That's that's hard to do with someone with FASD without a doubt. Doesn't mean it can't be done, but maybe if, if it's a child, it's going to be even more trickier. As the person gets older, the more you teach this over and over and over again, you might see some progress. I hear that a lot from caregivers where they see a lot of developmental catch up where the person it starts connecting the dots as they get older, but maybe as a teenager in the 20s, it's still very difficult. Journaling has been shown to be helpful for a lot of these things, like self-reflective journaling, these kind of things, anything we can do to get journaling infused. And I'm not necessarily saying this for someone with FASD per se, but for metacognition deficits, reflective journaling can really be a helpful strategy self-management of our own actions and behaviors and thoughts really involved like our ability to practice self-monitoring and it's part of goal setting it's part of self-evaluation and self-instruction and if people google self-monitoring interventions they're going to find a lot of good reading on that too so maybe working with a provider who also understands self-monitoring interventions that might be something to really consider because self-monitoring interventions have been shown to help promote more adaptive functioning, more self-regulation and generalization of skills. So again, we talk about generalization. So maybe that person has a therapist and they learn these skills in a therapy office and they say all the right things to the therapist. The minute they leave that office, can they take what they learned in there and apply it in the real world? That's generalization. A lot of times kids with FASD struggle with that. So teaching self-monitoring skills may also help improve 
generalization abilities. And if we can promote these things, it, the research leans to the fact if we can improve metacognition, it typically helps improve academic functioning, adaptive functioning, our social emotional health. And it's been shown to be a, a critical factor in building resilience as well. And we know resilience is so important to help people kind of bounce back from tough stuff. Wow. Such great stuff as always, Jared. Um, incredible, incredible, really. And my pages are full of, of notes. Um, but just as we wrap it up, you know, kind of bring it to a close in case, in case anyone didn't take notes or just feeling overwhelmed by just the amount of information. Just kind of give us the top three things a parent or caregiver can start doing today um, to help our kids. We can we can go back through and listen and, and really break down everything that you said and, and take notes on everything. But if we had to walk away with just three things, what should be the first three things parents should start really, really addressing? If sleep is off, get that under control because if the brain is off and not getting sleep, it's hard to get traction. So sleep is foundational, plays a critical role in self-regulation and all of these things. I don't want to get too far in the weeds with this, but what comes to my mind based on some things you brought up, maybe if appropriate, talk to your medical doctor, talk, talk to a nutritionist and rule out, again, is there any nutritional factors, blood sugar dysregulation, digestive health issues, food allergies, because a lot of these things have a huge impact on our brain and our behavior. And maybe referring back to the self-regulation talk we did, anytime we can promote self-regulation skills where we can slow that person down, and let that person's brain just go a little slower where then they might be in a better position to take in the information they're learning from you or their counselor or a school teacher. Then they can use that and hopefully have greater awareness. Their planning can be better. They can maybe learn how to self-monitor more effectively and just learn how to have a more of an internal parking brake learning how to just slow down, pause, reflect, and, and delay gratification. Because if we can do that, we live longer, we're healthier, we're less likely to have mental health problems, use drugs, come into contact with the justice system. So learning about these things, they're all so interconnected, but those would be the kind of three. There's many more, but those are three that just come to my mind. Yeah, well, you gave us a ton and I was trying to, you know, feverishly write them all down. Um, but just just so our listeners, if they could just walk away with the top three, I know almost always you always you know you bring up sleep, which is key. Um, and a lot of a lot of our kids have a hard time with sleep, um, so sleep is definitely something to pay closer attention to. Nutrition definitely, um, and then you also added um, promoting self regulation. So we had a whole topic about that. Our whole last bonus episode was on self regulation, so we learned a lot of good things there as well. So Dr. Brown, once again, thank you for breaking down another important subject for us today. And I'm looking forward to our next episode when I believe we're going to be talking about trauma and working memory. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. Our brain's post-it note, our brain's mental workspace. Awesome. I think that's going to be another, um, just such an important topic to cover. So Thank you again, Jarrett, for sharing your expertise with us today. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Wow. I hope you are getting as much out of these episodes with Dr. Brown as I am. I feel like they're like one-on-one -on -one counseling sessions almost. It's, it's just been tremendous. Um, so thank you for joining us. Um, you know, that just metacognition, a whole new word for me, um, all of the things that Jared broke down about that, obviously, if, especially if you are raising a child with an FASD um, and trauma, it just is like, okay, so that's it all. We're very familiar with these things, right? So um, such valuable information. Um, so be sure to join us next week because 
um, talking about working memory, very, very important. And I know when I, you know, ended the episode or ended my conversation with Dr. Brown and, and kind of clicked pause on the recording, we continue to have a conversation about um, the sugar and brain health. And we're going to be having an episode dedicated to, to that down the road because very interesting. He just said to me that um, Alzheimer's is now known as type three diabetes. And my, my dad, many of you know, my dad passed away a few months ago and he had Alzheimer's, but sugar was like what he wanted me to bring him all the time in the nursing home. Um, so just really, and, and, and if you, if you have a child with an FASD and you know that sugar, like one of my kids, sugar is all they ever want. And I've raised eight kids and, um, you know, it's normal for teenagers to want the junk food and want the sweets, but this, you know, I have one kid who is, it's just excessive and abnormal. And I know it's driven by something to do with the FASD. So we're going to have an episode down the road here where we just really unpack that. Um, so stay tuned for all of that. Um, and thank you again for joining us today um, for this bonus episode with Dr. Jared Brown. Um, and I, I'm looking forward to just all of these conversations that will be coming up. Um, remember our regular episodes uh, for this podcast drop on Mondays. Be sure to catch those along with these bonus episodes. Uh, this is our last bonus episode for the month of September, which was International FASD Awareness Month. Um, and all of our regular episodes uh, were focused on the topic of FASD and some very amazing guests and a couple of individuals who actually um, adults who have an FASD, I had the privilege of interviewing, um, such good stuff going on and, and topics for every adoptive foster and kinship caregiver. Uh, again, you can reach out to us at any time. If you want more information, you have a comment, a question, a suggestion, go to justicefororphansny.org. Um, or you can email me at sandraflack, jfo at gmail.com as well. Um, and be, for, be sure again to subscribe, leave a review, and let your friends know about this podcast. Uh, on our website, in addition to the Hope for the FASD Journey virtual support group, we do offer uh, workshops on FASD, some trainings, uh, and one coming up on October 27th. I will be doing a virtual introduction to FASD training. It's really, really beneficial for parents and caregivers. And if you're not sure if FASD is something that's going on, um, if you're just curious, if you're wondering, you want to learn a little bit more, it's a 90-minute uh, online workshop that I will be leading. Um, and you can sign up for that on my website, uh, justicefororphansny.org. Again, to find all of our FASD resources, you would click on uh resources at the top of the page, training, and then FASD. It's all there. Um, and coming up also in the new year, I will be adding uh, the FACETS workshops um, as I am wrapping up my training to become a facilitator of the FACETS neurobehavioral model. And that is some, some training that when I took the FACETS workshop in the early days, um, I took a, I took a three hour training and then I took uh, a six uh, a six session training. Um, it was really um, mind blowing. And I just, I knew I needed to learn more and I knew it was a game changer in our family with our kids with FASD. So I wanted to be able to offer those trainings to you. So we are now doing that. Um, and you can check out my family's book about our story. I know I talk a lot about my kids a lot on the show. Um, but you can read our whole story, how our kids came home, what life was like, and what I've learned since. Um, and the name of the book, uh, A Journey Back to the Father. Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father, uh, available wherever you buy books. Um, you can also get a signed copy on my website, um, sandraflack.com, uh, there as well. Um, and towards the end, if you're still listening, then you get to hear about some amazing businesses that are supporters of our nonprofit that help 
us to do all the things that we do, especially with Care Portal. Um, and our, those sponsors are Trinuclear Corporation, Bishop Boundary Construction, National Bank of Kuksaki, and Coleman Insurance Agency. These business businesses care about kids and help us do what we do. Again, check us out and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. You can also find me at both places at Sandra Flack. And again, I'm just so grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. I hope you found it to be a good use of your time and that you learned a lot. I am thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.